welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast brought to you by Luke Sadkovich and Callum Chain from ZFZ. How are you, Callum? I'm good, Luke. I'm good. We're uh, we are getting back into the swing of things. Kind of in the in the area of Section 44 again, but completely different take on it. And um, we're getting into the world of litigation funding and talking about quite a hot topic today. Um, but yeah, before we do it, how's things otherwise? Anything going on in your neck of the woods of interest? Things are good. It's been a busy couple of weeks. Um, we've yeah, the uh, there's been a bit of of splashback at the time of recording this from um, some of the uh, some of the detentions that have been happening in the uh, Red Sea, um, kind of in this bizarre world of of uh, shipping where we're we're there's there's it's almost kind of state sanctioned vessel seizures um which really is a, an unusual an, un, an unusual situation and a, you know highly uncertain one for for market participants um so there's been a few inquiries around around um whether ships need you know can trade through the red sea whether or not um owners can can go through a different and you know take take a different route against charter instructions um, all those interesting things, and it reminds you how how closely connected that world of trade and um, and shipping is to current affairs and the, you know the events that are going taking up taking place in in the world around us. Yeah, well, it's one of the great things about our practice, isn't it? That um, we're we're often dealing with real life events that are happening, whether it's out there on the on the ocean or in the banks or in the supply chains or you name it. Um, a, a lot of what we do on that high profile complex side of things is dealing with real life events and the, and the consequences of those um and it's what i enjoy actually about the practice and and dealing with the high stakes arbitration litigation work that you and i both get involved in just trying to keep to a diet before christmas parties uh, ruin everything <laughs> well actually yeah we haven't spoken about this but i'm i want to on a promise starting as of yesterday uh, not to drink through, drink alcohol through until um, Christmas time. So we'll see how that goes. It was bang on a month. Um, and as you know, December is a, usually a, a busy time for um, seeing people and all of that stuff. So um, wish me luck. But yeah, I, I'm on a bit of a health kick. Actually, I'm on a bit of a, a an overall personal growth kind of um, week this week. I'm heading off to texas um uh, tomorrow for a couple of days to attend a, a conference for kind of entrepreneurs um looking at you know where where their priorities are and how to get the most out of things and to refocus and all of this fun stuff so um yeah wish me luck on that yeah exactly that'll be i'll be interested to hear how that goes yeah yeah me too me too I'm, i've kind of signed up for i'm not entirely sure what to expect so We'll see. You, you, you might you might find a new guy on on Monday when we record our next one. <laughs> exactly. So today we are getting into the world of litigation funding, and um, I think it's fair to say that the lit litigation funding world was kind of turned upside down recently uh, in the UK with um, uh, a recent Supreme Court decision in what's known as the Packard case. Um, and the decision we're talking about today is one of the first decisions after that case, which tries to make sense of the whole situation and um, 
uh, how it plays out. The case we're talking about is the Ethereum litigation funding and Bugsby property case. It's a decision of Mr. Justice Jacobs of the Commercial Court um, in England and Wales. The uh, judgment was issued on the 20th of October 2023, so just over a month ago. Um, and the neutral citation number is 2023-EWHC2627-COM. So where to start with this one, Callum? Where to start, indeed. I think we, I think we need to start with a little bit of a summary of how we got here um, via Vacar. I suppose almost what the litigation funders do, what's a damages-based agreement, why are they an issue under English law, um, and how does this case then then crop up? Um, probably the way I would, I would start this one. Yeah, I think that, that sounds good. Why don't you, you lead it off? I guess if, if, we start, if we start from the very start, there was a rule against an arrangement where somebody would, would um, take on a case without being paid for it in the promise of remuneration once the case was um, decided in favor of their client. And this was to kind of put people off um, effectively the funding litigation and to say, you know, we don't, we, we don't, we don't need people to be arguing everything. We, we don't want people to be arg arguing everything. So, so there was a, there was a kind of general ban at common law on these, um, on these kinds of arrangements. Um, and, as the as the legal services world became more sophisticated, the legislation was brought into place to allow for um, damages based agreements. There's there's a um, there was a piece of legislation, the the Courts and Legal Services Act of 1990, which set out the sorts of situations in which people could um, offer damages based agreements, i.e., legal services in return for um, a promise of a share of the pie, if if there if there was any pie at the end of the the litigation. Yeah, this was basically overturning the rule against champerty, right? Um, this this old old rule that if you're not interested in um, in litigation in, in the court action, you shouldn't be funding it, and and that was really the old common law common law rule. Uh, it's only the party that has interest in those proceedings that should be funding the legal costs. And so, as we all know, um, there, there has been a, a kind of an explosion of litigation funding, which um, is the exact opposite of that, where a, um, a neutral third party is with deep pockets is funding the litigation uh, and they don't, they wouldn't naturally be um, concerned with that litigation, they weren't involved in the underlying dispute or know the parties. Um, they're they're purely getting involved from a financial perspective and then taking some of the upside on a successful result. And if it doesn't go their way, they also have skin in the game and share um, that loss and and basically make a loss on on the investment that they made on on the legal costs. This act from 1990 is is long. It deals with different types of arrangement, but one that it deals with these damages-based arrangements or, or DBAs. Um, and it had always been the, I suppose, the conceived wisdom that litigation funders fell outside the scope of this act. They, they, what, what the act says effectively is that there is a, um, there, there are a number of, of points that need to be satisfied if you're going to, if you're going to have a damages-based arrangement. 
there's there's other legislation that sets out what these points are. It, it varies from case to case, or it varies it varies from subject matter to subject matter. The type of case will mean that there's different requirements for for a DBA to be to be lawful. But the litigation funders never previously were concerned about that because they said, well, we're not offering the sort of service that falls within this this DBA um, this requirement to follow the rules of a DBA. Um, and then PACAR came along. And in the case of PACAR, there was effectively a defense that was put forward. Um, we don't need to go into the case in, in a huge amount of detail, but there's a lot of reading you know, online if you search PACAR, P-A-C-C-A-R. There's a lot of reading you can do on, on, on this case. It was very widely reported. Um, but effectively, the defense was this, this, the way that this case is being funded is illegal. And therefore, the case needs to be withdrawn. And the 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 rationale was that the litigation funders, or the funders as as they're known, were 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 providing claims management services. And under Section fifty eight AA of this nineteen ninety Act, um, a damages based agreement is an agreement quoting here between a person providing advocacy services, litigation services, or claims management services, and the recipient of those services, which goes on to say which provides that you get a share of the pie. And the the argument was litigation funders are providing claims management services. And this argument was rejected and rejected and rejected again all the way through to the Supreme Court, where they turned around and said, actually, no, this is this is right. If you are a litigation funder, then you need to be following the rules on damages-based agreements. Um, and in certain situations, that's impossible because the rules say you cannot provide, you cannot have damages-based agreement for this sort of um this sort of case, and I think that was the situation in PACAR. Um, although by the time it got to the Supreme Court, it was just agreed if the funders fell within the the definition of claims of providing claims management services, then they would be um, providing a DBA that was unenforceable. That was that was agreed. The argument was simply on whether they fell within that definition of, of providing claims management services. Yeah, and there's, so there's been this debate around. The extent of PACA um, and how far it reaches, whether it means that um, these uh, success fee, um, share of recovery type DBAs that funders are entering into are uh, enforceable across the board, whether PACA is limited to a narrow um, subset of cases, uh, whether it affects part of the agreements, whether it affects the whole agreements. Um, and there's there's a big debate about it. There's also been some um, some political interest in this and uh, lobbying and potential changes to laws and what have you. So it, it's a whole kind of contentious, um, hotly argued area where there's a lot of debate at the moment. So if you're interested in litigation funding or want to know more about it, I highly suggest um, doing some more reading about it, getting into it and, and, and understanding it. Litigation funding is a really big part of top-end litigation, and not just top-end litigation, but that's mainly where it's seen. Um, and it's a, it's a big industry. There are big sums of money involved and some big players uh, that, that are in this world, and, and it has the potential to affect a lot of um, how litigation is is funded and run. And into that world then, you know, the Packard decision, let me just pull up the... The exact date, um, I don't have it to hand, but it was, you know, it's a 2023 decision. I think it was, 
yeah, at some, some point earlier in the year. So, so it's it a 2023 decision. So it's it's super recent. And and into that area of kind of, I guess, confusion and uncertainty, um, trying to understand what what this what this rule or what this new law means um, comes this case where you have litigation yeah. funders, Ethereum litigation funding, obviously they're the funder, and Bugsby, and they're the recipients of the funding to go and prosecute their claim. Um, effectively, what happens is the, the funders have funded the claim. The claimant gets a settlement, but doesn't want to pay the funders. Um, and the litigation and and the, the litigation funders then want to bring a claim under their kind of fun, funding agreement. Um, the agreements is actually a series of agreements by which they agreed to provide the finance to to Bugsby to run the claim. Um, and they. Those those documents are all governed by arbitration. They're all subject to LCIA, um, and there's an arbitration that will continue. This that will be ongoing on on LCIA terms. Um, but there's in in the meantime, in order to make sure that they have something at the end of the at the end of the road, they brought this section forty four application before the high court. Yeah, exactly, and uh, and it's probably worth mentioning that Bugsby um, is a company that may be insolvent um it's not a, a a viable company that's thriving by the sounds of it i don't know anything about bugsby but from what i can work out on on this decision and the fund and some money has already gone to bugsby of the settlement amount some of it's still held by their current lawyers and i say current lawyers because i think they went through three or four law firms um uh, over the years um but the current uh, solicitors hold um, a big chunk of the funds that came out of the settlement and the funders are concerned that by the time um, the LCIA, uh, LCIA arbitration gets around to determining um, how much money should be paid to the funders, whether it should be paid to the funders, that the money will be dissipated and, and, and will go into Bugsby, maybe pay to other creditors and, and what have you. And it's important to note that the funders are arguing that they have a proprietary claim over the funds that have been paid out of the settlement, meaning that, um, the, that Bugsby or solicitors on their behalf should be holding on to those funds on trust for the funders until such time as there is a final determination of how much they are to be paid. And, and this is one of the, the key issues in dispute here, but it's it's that proprietary element of, um, of the, the funding agreement or the alleged uh, proprietary element of the funding agreement that really gets looked at here in in close detail. From Bugsby's perspective, if these agreements are all upheld, then they would get nothing. They 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 would run the investigation yep. all the way through, and they would end up with nothing. So when I read that part of the judgment, I had a little bit more sympathy for them to you know to want to hang on to some some of the of the benefit. But effectively, that if if enforceable these litigation funding agreements would exhaust the entirety of the settlement. Yeah, exactly. It's a good point to note commercially what's actually happening here. And and this is a something to keep in mind with litigation funding. It, it does come at a cost for the claimant. And the claimant may end up in a situation where they, um, they were not as successful as they were hoping to be. 
and the litigation funders, um, their costs or the the amount that they ha- had um, they were to be paid under the funding agreement, actually um, uh, exhaust the whole amount that was recovered by um, by the claimant, and that. Whether ultimately that is what happens here, that's the situation we're dealing with now. If the funder's full claims are to be paid out, Budsby will end up with nothing. And so what the funders want is they want the status quo to be preserved. They want the money to be held, uh, not you know vanish off into, um, into Budsby's accounts and never to be seen again, um, but they want the money to be held on trust pending final determination of um, the amounts that the funders and others is we could talk about this in, in lots of detail, but there are um, there are insurers that get involved. Let's say for the adverse cost risk uh, that um, uh, that could arise if the claimants fail entirely in the proceedings and they have to pay money to the defendants, and you can take out insurance, and the funders tend to do this. That um, there will be insurance in that event. And there's a premium associated with paying for that insurance. So the insurers may get paid an amount out of um, the awarded sum too. Uh, and of course, the lawyers, the lawyers who have um, been running it, they'll have some claim typically uh, over uh, um, amounts that are, that are due to be paid back from the settlement. So when you, when you put in the funders, the lawyers and the insurers, if you haven't been as successful as you wanted to be as a claimant, you can end up in a situation where you're getting nothing. It, the situation here is that the, there, there is, there's a pot of money. The pot of money is subject to an arbitration or they, it's, it's argued by one of the parties that that pot of money is what they should be getting out of their arbitration. Um, and they are then involving the court to preserve that pot of money. Under, under section 44. So the the, the case we, we discussed last time on the podcast was looking at a slightly creative use of section 44 or effectively testing the limits of section 44 and saying, can you use section 44 effectively to prejudge the outcome of the, of the arbitration? This is a much more conventional use of section 44. This is simply, yeah. this, is, this, is, this, is, this is the money that we're entitled to. We want, we want to make sure it stays in place while we argue the toss in the, in the, in the arbitration, um, yeah, and that's quite important because it colours the way that the judge was looking at this question, um, and really what it came down to when they they were they were effectively seeking to preserve assets, um, and the judge was looking at the American settlement uh, test, um, and the key limb of that test that really this whole case turned on was whether there was a serious issue to be tried. Um, and the litigation funders obviously said there was. They said there, there, there are all sorts of reasons why their agreement would still be able to remain in place, notwithstanding the decision in PACAR. Um, and Bugsby Property, the, um, the, the party who are seeking to take, take the money and, and run, were effectively saying, no, there's no way you can go against Supreme Court um, authority on this point, and there's no serious issue to be tried. I suppose I, I say all that to make it clear that the burden for the funders here wasn't to win the case. The burden for the funders here was simply to say there was a case. I think that's a really important point. And, and there's three elements to, to that test you talk about, whether um, you know an asset preservation order should be granted. And that's what we're dealing with in, in section 44, you know, the, the preservation of assets. 
uh, or evidence, but that's that's not the case here. And firstly, it was um, it was the Madoff Securities International and Raven case in 2011 that established that that test uh, that you're referring to does apply um, to asset preservation orders in support of proprietary claims. Um, so we know that we that that test applies to what we're dealing with in this case. As you say, the main test uh, or the main element of that test that was in play in this decision was the serious issue to be tried element. There are two other elements to that um, to that test, and that is the balance of convenience is in favour of an injunction, and then thirdly that it is just and convenient to make the order sought. Now, those two other elements were not really up for debate. Bugsby had uh, effectively um, conceded those points uh, and was relying primarily on the serious issue to be tried. And they were trying to say that um, in view of PACA, there's, uh, there's a clear reason why um, the funders' claims would not succeed uh, there's not a serious issue in debate here or for, or, or for, for trial, um, and it should be uh, struck out. And that's, that's difficult to do. Now, it's, it is certainly possible in, in some cases, but that is the prism through which the judge here um, was looking at the matter. And so Mr. Justice Jacobs was very careful in, in the analysis in setting out right at the start to say, um, that's the th- that's the threshold that I'm I'm looking at. Serious issue to be tried, but also um, that if there's a big debate to be had, if there's multiple days of hearing, if there's very complicated arguments required, uh, if it's um, if it requires mature kind of discussion and argument, all the rest of it, that that kind of suggests that there is a serious issue to be tried. It, it's it's the arguments that a clear cut that, you know, just you can cut through a claim or part of a claim and say this just is not going to fly um, where, uh, where where you can get through on this type of argument. And I think one of the issues here, and, and the court kind of hints at this actually, Callum, is that the Packard case is very new and it's such a hot area. I actually looked up as you were talking. It was from July um, this year, 2023. So, we're only a few months down the track and um, the consequences of that Packard decision are still being debated in, in lots of different forums. And I think given that this case goes to Packard and how it's to be, um, to be applied, now, uh, the, the court was somewhat reluctant to um, just come out and say, okay, that shuts all these arguments down. Um, I think the judge was much more in favour of saying, well, as PACAR, as the ramifications of PACAR are playing out, we should be having the full debates. We should be maintaining the status quo on things like, you know, assets and what have you until such time as those debates can be had. And I think there was, you know, obviously there's more to it than that, but that, that's kind of part of the rationale that I read that sits behind this decision. Yeah. And it's an interesting decision for someone, for, for a judge at first instance to have to make, I suppose, because... Yeah. On the one hand, you know, the Supreme Court authority is Supreme Court authority. Um, and we can come on to why actually the Supreme Court authority is is not on all fours with the situation in the Ethereum case. So the PACAR case is different to the Ethereum case in, in a couple of very important um, 
in a couple of very important aspects. Um, but even so, you effectively have a have a um, high court judge who's sitting here and saying, well, yes, PACAR is settled law. Yes, it's Supreme Court law. However, this is a very new area of law. Um, this is a decision that was overturned um, on appeal to the Supreme Court with dissent. Um, although it is the law and it stands as the law, this is an area where there is a lot of exploration left to be done and therefore the issues to be tried are serious. Now, also, you know, it also seemed as though um, Bugsby's approach to the to the claim was to say, um, you know, that they needed a long a long period of time to really ventilate all of the interesting issues as to why there was no serious issue to be tried. And the judge kind of made a a bit of a flippant remark about how you know if you need two if you need two days of oral argument to um, to persuade me that there's not a serious issue to be tried, then there probably is one, um, which I thought. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I picked that up as well. But I think the really interesting point on this one for me, and and where where the the it, it was made easy for the judge to say there was a serious issue to be tried, the way that the the funding structure worked in this case was not purely on a damages-based agreement. There was a certain threshold, and I think it was a threshold somewhere north of 35 million, um, and they kept the claim settled somewhere around 25 million. I don't know the exact numbers, but they are in the judgment. Um, but if the, if the claim had got to that 35 million threshold, then anything on top of that would be subject to a percentage, which would be very much damages-based agreement style wording, style drafting, the, the exact concept of a, of a DBA would fall neatly into, um, or that that structure would fall neatly into the exact concept of a DBA. But actually, up to that point, the structure was slightly different. And it was all about returning the money that was put in by the funders um, with with, an, with a multiplier. It was about payments out to the lawyers. Um, the, the, the way that it was structured wasn't saying you get a percentage of the recovery. It was saying we get we get back what we put in plus extra. Um, if and and if you and if you then go over a certain a certain number, we also get a cut of of whatever the about whatever the excess is. Um, and because because they never got into that sort of DB, classic DBA situation, effectively the recovery wasn't high enough to get them into that DBA type type recovery. They said, well, actually, all of all of the all of the bits in the payment waterfall before you get to that classic pure DBA situation. Um, fall outside this rule of DBAs, so we don't have we don't fall within um, the the Courts and Legal Services Act 1990 because we haven't agreed a DBA at least for that part of the agreement. If the agreement contains an element of a DBA, so if there's this element um, where the funders' um, payment is contingent on a percentage of a settlement sum or you know judgment sum. Uh, does does the fact that there's an element that that could be described as a DBA render the whole agreement unenforceable, or is, is it a bit like an arbitration agreement in in a main contract, as the analogy was used here um, by by the funders' counsel, in that you can separate out the DBA element of the funding agreement and say that's unenforceable, but the rest of it which was based on a return of um, cost pay with a multiplier, that is still enforceable. And that's not a, a DBA in nature, and it shouldn't be um, struck down on the basis of the Packard decision. So it's this kind of 
you know, how do you how do you characterize the agreement? And, and you can kind of see that there might be arguments both ways on that. That you know, the level of the multiplier for the um, for the, for the amount that was paid in that could be commercially that could have changed depending on how much percentage was put into the DBA component. It, the level at which the DBA component kicks in may have changed up or down, and that affects the multiplier on the amount that um, that would be paid on the on the costs reimbursement side. So you can kind of see that uh, trying to separate out just the DBA element of the agreement. Um, from the rest of it commercially may seem, um, you know, it, 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 it may not be reasonable to do. But similarly, you know, the, the Act um, does deal with damages-based agreements and that's what PACA goes to. So why, why should, should the other elements of the retainer agreement, which are more um, traditional in nature, why should they be all shut down just because there is this component in there uh, for the DBA, and I say all that because you can kind of see that there is a there's a debate to be had there, right? And at at this level, in this decision, what we're talking about is not what's ultimately going to be right on that question. It's is there a serious issue to be tried? Is there a serious debate here to be had about whether um, the whole agreement should fall away in this case, or whether it should just be the uh, the DBA component of that agreement that falls away and the rest can remain in place? And you know the the, the court um, uh, seemed pretty clear that there was a serious issue to be tried on on this basis, and that it should go to trial. And in the meantime, uh, Section forty four should be used to keep the funds in place pending that final decision. Yeah, and I think the funders also were were, were helped with some some case law from twenty twenty one, case law Zuberi and Lex versus Lex Law Missouri and Lex Law. Um, and this this case was referred to it in the Packard decision, but it wasn't overturned. Um, it looked like it was yeah. So this is a court of appeal decision, um, and in this decision, you know, is really um, on topic for the the question of what's the nature of the agreement. This was looking at an agreement from a firm of solicitors, um, but the, the the court considered how do you view how do you view what the DBA is, and the court effectively said. What you've just said there, Luke. You know, there are two ways of looking at it. One is that any agreement that has a component of um, of uplift or of shared shared recovery um, or you know share of the spoils is a DBA, even if the rest of the retainer deals with other um, you know other other methods of of payment. Um, but the other way of looking at it is that it's a, a contract of retainer, which entices a lawyer to a share of recoveries, but also other provisions which provide for payment on a different basis. I'm quoting from this court of appeal judgment now, um, or other or other terms which do not deal with payment at all. Only those provisions in the contract of retainer which deal with payment out of recoveries amount to the DBA. Um, and the court of appeal went on to say that in 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 their view, uh, or at least the major in the majority's view, um, there were there were good reasons for preferring the the latter approach, i.e., the DBA is only the bit that refers to a, a share of the spoils. Um, and in that context, Ethereum could point to Court of Appeal authority that said, "Look, this is this is a um, this is a, this is a point at least open for us to argue that the only bit of the the only bit of our funding agreement um, that PACAR can attack is the bit that applies to recoveries over whatever it was thirty five, thirty seven million, um, and not to the rest of it, which is which is where we're bringing our claim 
um, for payment. Um, and you know, again, we go back to we go back to the question the court has to answer, um, which is always important in these in, in these um, in these kind of uh, injunctive reliefs or these these applications before the courts. You know, what what do you actually have to prove to the court to get to get the thing you're asking for? And here, you just they, all the all the funders had to show was that they had a serious issue to be tried, um, and obviously with some helpful authority on the side. With a highly, a highly kind of contested and complex Supreme Court decision, uh, which kind of came as a bolt from the blue, there was so many different issues here that I think the court, you know, was 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 reasonably safe in saying this is a serious issue that has to be tried. One of the arguments that was um, kind of focused on early was to show that the element of the funding agreement that um, related to the funder receiving a multiple of the costs was not um, in, by its nature a DBA and that it was more a success fee or a contingent fee type arrangement. And there was some um, an article that was referred to by the court here um, on the nature of funding. And and so the way I thought it was quite clever, the, the way that the, the funders council kind of set this up was to say, well, um, there are parts of this funding agreement, the return of costs and the multiple of costs, that if there was no component of a DBA at all in that agreement, it would clearly not be a DBA. You, you, you know, just because it had the multiplier, that would not pull it within the DBA. And that was almost conceded, I think, by the other side. Um, uh, and then, then it goes on to argue, well, there is this additional component in this agreement, in this funding agreement, that is a DBA, uh, and you, you, so you've got a composite type agreement, and so it, 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 kind, of, it kind of neatly set up this this compartmentalized agreement. Whether that ultimately wins or not, I, it'll be interesting to follow it through if it if it ultimately runs and it's not settled out. But I thought the way that um, that that was argued was quite uh, quite neat. Did you did you want to say anything on on the severance point? Um, uh, or on quantum, I think you know that's that's really the critical part here. Um, there, there was this debate on on quantum, which uh, I, I thought was at least worth touching on. But did you want to mention anything on on the severance point? Yeah, I, th I think I think to be honest, the severance point we kind of wrapped into um, yeah. what we discussed. You know, they they could split out the two different parts of the agreement, or at least they could argue that they could split out the two points of the agreement. So. Given that time is not on our side, maybe we we jump onto the quantum point. Yeah, I th it was it was an interesting one. Um, this this was all about whether um, the entirety of the proceeds that had been paid to Bugsby itself and to its lawyers, whether all of it should be held on trust pending the final outcome of the case, or whether. Only the amount of um, Ethereum's claim should be held on trust pending the final decision. And at, a, at first glance, that seems a little bit odd. Well, like, why would Ethereum be arguing that the entire amount should be held on trust pending final resolution? Um, but it goes to the, the wording in the Ethereum um, funding agreement. And it also goes to the fact that, and we haven't touched on this, but there was another funder involved in this matter and an agreement was reached between Bugsby and that other funder as to how much it was going to get and it 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 didn't really feature in 
this matter at all. Um, and uh, what I can work out here is that Ethereum want, wanted to know um, that there wasn't going to be some shortfall at the end of the end of the end of the game, and that everything would be held status quo in place. Some monies wouldn't go to pr be preferred to the other funder or to someone else until such time as everything's resolved. And they had beneficial language in the funding agreement that. Um, that cast a very wide net over uh, any monies that are recovered, and and you know what, what's the definition of claims proceeds? It was a very um, wide definition that captured anything coming in, and all of that, it argued, should be held on trust until the final de determination as to who gets what. Um, again, the threshold here is not is that right? The threshold here is there a serious issue to be tried? Um, and again, the court said, yes, all, all the money should be held in place um, and held on trust pending pending the final outcome. To me, that was the that was straightforwardly the sensible decision, really. You know, the, if you if you take into account just Ethereum's claim, sure there's enough in the in the uh in the current solicitor's account to cover it. But Ethereum was one of many people seeking a recovery, and Ethereum's claim would be prejudiced by the other people who would have have a better recovery than them, or or would get paid out in priority to them. Um, and it only made sense that the entirety of the of the pot was uh, preserved, even the pot that had already been advanced out to uh, to Bugsby. And Callum, I've I've got a um, a practitioner's tip on on this case, uh, which I th I thought was. Um, uh, I, I found this really interesting, actually. So, um, this argument on the quantum uh, and how much money should be held on trust for the litigation funders pending the final outcome was not fully ventilated in the skeleton arguments and in written submissions prior to the hearing. And the judge noted that. He heard um, oral argument, Mr. Justice Jacobs, he heard oral argument on uh, the quantum argument before him. And uh, if I may say, I think being guided by the threshold in which he was assessing this, this interim measures question, and that is whether there was a serious issue to be tried, rather than just solely relying on the oral arguments, and there was no transcript taken here either, he asked the parties to set out after the hearing a summary of the arguments that they wanted to make on this quantum point. And I thought it was quite clever in a way, if I can say that, Callum, because uh, the, um, what, what the, the judge was effectively doing was um, <laughs> making the parties demonstrate how complicated some of these arguments were. Um, and then receiving detailed um, summaries of the position that each party had on this quantum argument, again, was really making the point, well, look, there's mature debate to be had on this. This is really more appropriate to be had at the trial rather than um, here at this uh, interim step in, in the overall proceedings. I think the, the practitioner's tip there is always be thinking about um, what's the threshold that you're trying to get through when you're before the court? And then presentationally, how do you present those arguments in a way that 
um, demonstrates that you meet that threshold. And here, the more that Bugsby had to show that it was complicated, that it required detailed argument, the less likely they were to ultimately prevail on the relief they were seeking at this stage in the proceedings. So it's just, I, I don't know, I, I don't know whether you got a similar kind of thought along that, but it's this practitioner's tip about always, it's not just what you've got to say, it, it is also how it's presented. It is also a matter of persuasion. It is also getting the court um, on your side. Yeah, and this goes as well to the to the request for a two-day hearing. Um, to, to be fair, I think that Bugsby and their lawyers were on a, on hiding to nothing here. Really, it was a difficult, difficult case. It, the, you know, the judge makes this point in the first ten paragraphs. You know, how can this? How can this be? How can it not be a serious issue to be tried if you're asking me to set aside two days for an urgent hearing? It, it's um, it, from that point on, you you knew to the direction of travel, and as you say on the on the quantum points, the judge kind of had confirmed it before they'd even started. Really, you know, go away and write down. Um, all the points that you're trying to argue here because I'm confused and the, the fact that not, maybe not I'm confused but you know you've 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 rushed through them quickly in oral argument um and I need to see them on paper to make to make proper head you know sense of them um but then obviously having seen them on paper the judge is going to turn around and say well hang on a minute there's arguments on both sides here um and there's therefore a serious issue to be tried they they all require mature consideration and full argument is one of the lines that the uh, the judge here has used. Well, look, I enjoyed that discussion, Callum. Thank you, everyone, for listening in, and I hope you've you've enjoyed it too and got something out of uh, this discussion today. It's it's a really a hot topic at the moment in English litigation, arbitration, uh, uh, with litigation funding. Um, if you're interested in that as a commercial party. Um, or as a, as a um, funder or as a, a litigator yourself, um, I encourage you to read, to get more into it. If you'd like to discuss it with us, um, Callum and I, we, we're all over litigation funding and know all about it. So if you want to know how that uh, might be used on your cases, um, what effect these recent decisions have had on some of the potential claims that you've got, uh, then by all means, get in touch with us um, and we can we can help develop those discussions. Uh, just a, a final last request, if you don't mind um, uh, following, subscribing, clicking uh, all those buttons that you do on podcasts to to stay part of the part of the group, and um, we very much appreciate it. It's how the podcast is growing. It helps get the uh, get the word out there and and develop it. So thank you very much for your your patronage. And until next time, take care, everyone. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye.